0: Today, I am joined by suicide loss survivor and mental health counselor, Sarah Gere. Sarah has decades of experience in the mental health counseling field. She has worked with veterans and first responders. So we're going to be talking to her about her perspective on mental health and all the work that she has done. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So that was my bio, but you know, I think being a suicide loss survivor is a really important part of my identity. It really shaped who I am as a person and how I show up to my work in, in all of the contexts that I that I do work in. And uh, you know, I feel really fortunate. I feel really honored to be able to spend time with people, especially in the trauma response work, which is you know often the hardest moments of people's lives.
0: So, you say that you are a suicide loss survivor. Explain to the listeners what that means.
1: Sure. So, we talk about suicide loss survivors. When I first lost my best friend to suicide, it was pretty much a description that was reserved for families, which makes sense in some ways because certainly, you know, losing a parent or a sibling has a very, very, very huge impact on someone. But now we recognize that anyone who lost somebody that they loved or cared deeply about is a suicide loss survivor. So for me in 1998, I lost one of my best friends still in my lifetime, really, to suicide. And it completely shifted, I think, my, my whole life probably.
0: Well, I'm definitely sorry for your loss. Well, thank you. Well, t- tell us about, I know you have decades of experience in the field, so... I know you You worked with different types of people, including veterans and first, first responders, but just kind of tell us the different kind of people you've interacted with and, and worked and what got you started in the field?
1: Sure. So I I mean, a boring backstory is um, what really got me started is I was in a community college and I was in an intro to psych class at in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and I found it really fascinating. And so- I ended up deciding to major in that. And then I had just accepted my first job in a residential program for girls, most of whom were in the Department of Children and Families custody, but some who were part of the Department of Youth, Youth Services. And in between when I was offered the job and when I was supposed to start, my best friend died by suicide. And I just felt like I couldn't do it. It was too close. These were kids who all had terrible struggles in their lives. And I was really afraid. I guess if I'm being honest, maybe I was afraid I couldn't help them. Because, you know, here I am, having watched my best friend struggle for so long. And the ultimate truth was I couldn't help her. And so I chickened out. I did not want to take the job. And my mom, who is an absolutely brilliant woman, you know, said to me, you can always quit later just just try it. So I find myself at 20 years old working in a girls' residential program with all of these kids who had had incredibly hard lives. And I loved it. And I loved them. I did find it, if I'm being honest, too hard for a bunch of reasons. And I will speak very honestly about that. One is I don't agree with the way the kids were being treated. They, It was very punitive. Back then it was called behavior modification. And I did not think that it was helpful to the kids. And so I decided to go into doing a different type of work with youth, which was therapeutic outreach. And I loved that. Um, These were all kids who were in the Department of Mental Health. And it was my job was to give them fun, to help them learn social skills and, you know, take them to the park and bowling. And I loved it. But what I didn't realize when I took the job is that sometimes it was going to mean I had to drop kids off in homes where I didn't think they were safe. And that really, really wore on me. And so I decided that I wanted to go back to school and probably not work with youth anymore, even though I really loved them. So I did that. And next thing you know, I decided this was my brilliant plan, right? So it's just evidence that as we get older, we thankfully we learn. I decided that working in substance use treatment would be way easier on my heart and soul than working in residential or even outreach programs for youth. So I took a job therapeutic community, which was called Phoenix House, and absolutely loved it. It was mostly men and uh, most of them were coming out of prison and all of them had substance use issues. And it was really interesting the day that I realized, I think we we had built forts with pillows and blankets in the living room. And all of a sudden it hit me that these people were actually the same people that had been my kids, they were just older. And um, that was a really interesting realization to have. And so I did that for a while. And ultimately, in the long run, I decided to go back to school and study trauma because I have come to believe that trauma is at the root of so many issues that people in America face. And it's often not being addressed. We're only dealing with the the obvious symptoms in the moment, like the substance use. We're not asking the questions about why is this person in this place? Why is this person feeling the way that they're feeling? So I wanted to go to school and learn how to help people, which is what brought me to working with veterans. And I don't want to bore you with all the details, but from there, I found myself super fortunate to become the a team leader, excuse me, for a crisis counseling program through FEMA to address the needs of people in Western Massachusetts after the tornadoes that struck in 2011. And so it was one of the most amazing professional experiences of my life because we worked with with all walks of life, including a lot of new Americans. And so it became a real area of passion for me. And then I was so impressed by the organization that ran that program, I begged them to keep me. And it turned out the only job that they had available at the time was suicide prevention with men. So I took it thinking I would do that for a couple of years, learn as much as I possibly could about everything, and then move on and found myself there until COVID hit, at which point I was the senior team leader for the COVID-19 crisis counseling program in Massachusetts. So that finally wrapped up, and now I am out on my own. I am working on getting the books that I have done over the last five years out because we published them during the pandemic and did not think about the fact that we would not market them during the pandemic because we were all doing other things. So here I am trying to catch up.
0: Speaking of those books, tell us about those books. Tell us uh, what listeners can expect when they read them and, and where to get them.
1: Yes. Thank you, Curtis. I am extremely proud of It's a series of four books that are all about men's mental health. It's called Guts, Grit and the Grind, Mental Mechanics Manual. And it was really born out of my experience of working with first responders, actually, where, you know, I found when I was doing trainings and such, it was really hard to get people to open up, predominantly men, to open up and talk about the trauma and the stress and, you know, any other issues around mental health. But interestingly enough, when they had a chance to get me by myself, They would share the most incredible stories. And day after day, I thought to myself, I really wish that the guy I spoke to three days ago could hear this guy's story because there's so much healing that happens when we hear from other people who have had similar lived experiences to us. So I reached out to my friend, Sally, who is this kind of superstar in the suicide prevention world, specifically with men's mental health, because she lost her brother to suicide. So that's what's really driven her passion. And I said, Sally, I have this really crazy idea. What if we collected men's stories and made an anthology out of it? And uh, she made the mistake then, I don't know that she would make it again, but of going, that's a great idea. So anyway, we put out a call for submissions, asked for men to share their stories with us about hardships and trials, and most importantly, how they came through those hard times. And Curtis, can you believe we thought this was going to be one book? We'd get it done in maybe a year. Well, five years it took us, and part because we had so many submissions that we ended up having to make four books or it was going to be over 700 pages. And so these books are filled with stories ranging from what we call general maintenance, which is how to keep yourself from ever having any significant mental health challenges, to experiencing suicidal intensity and how people have survived that or, or how they got through, you know, the homicide of a loved one. So it's a, it's a huge range of stories. But the idea at the end of the day is that it's really important for men to open up and talk about these things, but also to see that there's hope that even when life feels really hopeless, there, there are pathways to finding a life that feels worth living. So you can find all four of those books. Again, it's the Guts, Grit and the Grind Mental Mechanics Manuals, and you can find all four of those on Amazon.
0: So tell us, who was your biggest mentor doing all the work you've done?
1: I've been incredibly lucky, Curtis. I've had so many people take me under their wing. I would say Sally Spencer Thomas, who I had just mentioned that I did the book with, has been a huge mentor for me especially as a another woman working in men's mental health which there's not a ton of us she's really sort of paved the way and believed in my vision and that's been super super important she's also been really supportive of my interest in the idea or the concept of the soul which a lot of people in the mental health field you know sort of not as much as i expected i shouldn't say that i expected that everyone in the mental health field would kind of you know poo poo me talking about the soul but um, I've actually had a much better reception than I thought and but Sally's been one of the biggest cheerleaders for me with that. I also have to admit I had a supervisor named Dr. Larry Berkowitz who I worked with for nine years and he he taught me so so much about suicide prevention and uh, trauma response work and the power of compassion and empathy. Um, so he's definitely been a massive guiding light in my work. And then I I feel like I could go on for days. One last person, a very dear colleague of mine, her name is Joanna Bridger, and she has a website called uh, Safety, Hope and Healing. And she's her passion's really been all sorts of things, but especially around doing trauma informed work with schools. And, you know, when we talk about suicide prevention, we often talk about upstream. And that means catching people as young as humanly possible. And in a lot of instances, that's in schools. You know, catching these kids before they've been stamped with a bad kid label and convinced by the world that they are a bad kid. Um, so I am grateful for all that I've learned from her.
0: What is one thing that you've learned in, in the mental health in- industry that you think that that would help people or, or that everyone should know?
1: One thing that I've learned in the mental health field that I think everyone should know. I'm going to try to say this the right way. I guess one thing that I have learned over and over and over again is that everything's relative. You know, people spend a lot of time getting into competitions about who's had more pain and who's had more trauma and both in the context of saying, you know, well, you haven't had it that bad because I went through this, but also we do it to ourselves. We say, you know, I haven't had it that bad because look at this terrible thing someone else went through. And what I've learned is to just appreciate everyone's journey, that it doesn't matter if someone else has had it better or worse. What matters is what your experience is. And, you know, I think that's been really helpful for me, um, you know, both finding space to respect my own lived experience with suicide loss. And, you know, I lost my dad last, excuse me, almost two years ago now, but during the pandemic, not all of the pandemic, but during it and really giving my pers- myself pers- permission to own my stuff. And know that it's not a competition none of none of these things are a competition. There's no winners for for most of these these challenges people face,
0: so give us some tips how to I know you talked about how to try to avoid having mental health challenges and how how we can help uh someone in our life that might be having some mental health challenges
1: yeah, Curtis. the thing I've learned and and I just can't stress this enough, you know it's it's human connection. It's and it shows up in all different ways for some people that connections at church, for some people that connections in an AA meeting, for some people that connections at home. But, you know, the importance, especially I feel like over the last few years with the pandemic and, you know, most of us are really worn down, you know, and and the need to stay connected with each other. And ourselves. And so when I talk about soul care, which is different than self-care, it's significantly more sort of in depth and deeper than than what most people think of as being self-care. But there's this term in Gaelic and it's called Anamkara. Um, and what Anamkara means is a soul friend. And I I think it's a really beautiful idea. And and basically what that means is it's that person in your life that you can show up just as yourself with. You don't feel like you have to put on a mask in front of them. You don't have to pretend to be happy when you're not. You don't have to watch what you say. You can just truly be yourself around them and know that they appreciate you and and vice versa. They can be themselves around you and have safety that you appreciate them. I've been lucky. I feel like I've had a lot of Anam in my life. I'm certainly my best friend who died in 1998. I would describe her. As being, having been one of those people for me. And so I think it's really important for all of us to remember the people that matter the most in our lives and to find ways to stay connected to those people. And especially, you know, in a time when things are so hard, I I see, at least on social media, that people are often allowing themselves to, you know, end relationships and disown family members and friends over you know, things that I don't know that they're worth that. So I think just really seeing the value in the people in our lives. And if you don't have them, if you don't have that Anamkara, if you don't have those people that you feel super connected to, then I hope you'll take a moment and look into all of the different types of peer things that are out there. You know, peer support is probably one of the, in my view, one of the most powerful tools for healing for people. And we saw that with the Me Too movement, how many women came forward and said, yes, that terrible thing happened to Me Too. And peer support can happen at the lunch table at work. Again, it can happen at church. But there's also formalized peer support. There's agencies around the United States that have peer support programs, offer things like you know, peer support groups. And those things can be incredibly powerful and a great place to find those soul friends, those, those real, true, authentic connections to other people.
0: Oh, you, you won an award in 2022. So t- tell people about that and tell us uh, how made you feel to win it.
1: I did. I did. I won a leadership award in suicide prevention by the Massachusetts Coalition for Suicide Prevention. And I was so honored. It was, you know, there were folks from a few different regions who won the award, which is amazing. And I was up against some real heavy hitters, just people who truly dedicate probably every breath that they have to suicide prevention. I think I'm dedicated, but I'm not sure to that extent, but I won the award. The reasons that people nominated me was because I'm always looking for um, a new and interesting way to help people, especially those who have been really hard to reach, you know, so working age men, that's a group that's been really, really hard to get to. And so I'm always trying to come up with creative ways to get important things out to those people and to have them see that there's hope that there's people out there who care i think i did a lot of that work also during the fema crisis counseling program of just you know we have to be creative to get messages out to people who are in need so that is um i think why people nominated me because i i do like to find out of the box ways but the reason for that curtis for me is i think we have a history of doing the same thing over and over and over again and not getting the results that we wanna get. And so I think it's really important, no matter what it is that you care about, that you think about creative ways and new ways to try to get your message out to the people who need to hear it the most. So that's that's the award and that's the why.
0: Do you have any current or upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about?
1: So I think the project that I am the most excited about, it's called soul exhaustion, and soul care. And the reason that I'm really focused on this is because having worked with New Americans, having worked with different cultural groups, having worked with working-age men, I often hear that the language we use in mental health doesn't really fit for them. And so I wanted to find something that resonated. And interestingly, and actually sort of mistake by accident, I had this realization after a trip to the White Mountains in New Hampshire, when I I took this ridiculous hike, I had very mistakenly just read that it was a, a short and sweet hike. So I thought, well, I can do short and sweet. Well, it turns out that the website that called it short and sweet is named Hiker at Heart, which I am absolutely not. So anyway, I decided to go on this hike and took my dogs and my husband, and it was super not short and sweet. It was absolutely glorious. It was beautiful when I finally made it to the top. I I don't know that I'd do it again, but I I would say it was worth it. But by the time I got back down the hill mountain, and um, I experienced this level of physical exhaustion, really almost like nothing else I'd ever had in my life. And I'm sitting at, at dinner with my husband and I'm like, I'm so tired that it's hard to lift my fork. And I find myself just about starting to cry. And I thought, I am so exhausted. I don't think I've ever been so tired before. And then it hit me. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of like walking into someone's house and there's, you know, they're cooking something and the smell's familiar, but it takes you a minute to place it. And, And that's sort of the experience I had where I was trying to place when I had felt this type of exhaustion before. And all of a sudden it hit me that, One of the times I had felt it was after my best friend died. And then I thought to myself, but that it was different because this is physical exhaustion and that was soul exhaustion. And so from that moment was born this idea of soul exhaustion, which full disclaimer, other people have used that term, but they're not using it in a mental health way, which I am using it in a mental health way. And so I started doing some informal research and then I've actually done some more formal research, really looking at what people believe about the soul. And it's fascinating because about 90% of people that we have surveyed report that they do in fact believe in the soul. Um, people have different ideas of what exactly it is, but they believe in this idea. And so I think the most powerful definition that anyone's given me, it was actually an English language learners classroom at a community college here in Connecticut. And I asked this this group of students who were all learning English, what they thought the soul was. And one young woman looked at me and she said, it's the real me. It's the me when you take all of these other things away, the sadness and the anger and the trauma that I've had. And when you just see me, the soul is just the real me. And so I'm really excited about this idea of, you know, what does that mean? The real you. And what happens when the real you is wounded or tired and how do we take care of that? So I started looking into some of the ways that, A, the soul gets exhausted, which I think COVID-19 for sure is exhausting people's souls. But I also think, you know, all of the, all of the other hardships that we have faced in our country over the last few years, I think it's worn a lot of us down. So then the next question, of course, is, well, how do we fix this problem so I started diving into that with uh, first myself, but also talking to lots of other people. And some of the ways that you can take care of your soul that we're coming up with is finding meaning in life. Something that really matters maybe for you, Curtis, the, this podcast is, is meaning, right? But finding something that really means something to you. We also are looking a lot at forgiveness, um, you know, because holding on to that anger and and sometimes the guilt can really do damage to the real us. So I'm looking a lot at forgiveness. And then, you know, but also things like taking an epic journey, whatever that looks like. So just thinking about our wellness and what we as human beings need in a in a little bit different way than the mental health field generally talks about it. And also recognizing that if you're somebody who's been struggling with a mental health condition, it absolutely can exhaust your soul. It can really wear down on the real you. So it's not that The conversation about the soul, you know, overrides the mental health conversations. I think the two things really do go hand in hand. So that's the project that I'm working on right now. I was really super blessed to have asked to do a keynote for the Missouri Suicide Prevention Conference this summer. And I'm really excited. I will also be presenting on soul exhaustion at the American Association of Suicidology this spring.
0: All right. So people can keep up with everything that you're doing. Throw out your contact information.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you can find my website at saragair.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn or Twitter, all at saragair.
0: Sweet. Close us out with some final thoughts. Maybe something that I forgot to touch on that you would like to talk about or Just any final thoughts you have for the listeners.
1: My final thought for everybody out there is if you're feeling worn out and tired. It is so, so, so important that you take some time and rejuvenate yourself. I know it can be hard, especially if you're raising kids and have jobs. Sometimes that time is just 10 minutes, but taking that time for yourself and especially to stay connected to the things that really make you feel alive. Always want to remind people that there are tons of resources out there for anyone who needs professional support, not to mention, of course, 988, which is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I think it's really important, Curtis, for people to know that 988 is not only available if you are having a hard time or you are thinking about suicide, but 988 is also available if you care about somebody and you're worried and you need some guidance. So 988 is a really wonderful, it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week resource throughout the United States.
0: right, ladies and gentlemen, so if you are having mental health challenges or somebody that you know is having mental health challenges, be sure to dial 988. Sarah, I'd like to thank you for joining me and let everybody know to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible. And of course, if you enjoy this episode or the show in general, please be sure to tell a friend. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Curtis. Be well.